Uh, the scripture reading this morning is from Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. So I invite you to, to stand with me as I read in recognizing the authority of God's word. This is Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of God. Please be seated. and mic troubles right there for you. Good morning, Christ community. Whoa, sorry. Yeah. All right. My name is Craig. I'm one of the elders here. I'm thankful to open God's word with you this morning. I've been praying for you um, specifically about today as we're coming down the stretch of our series here in Mark. We've got two more weeks and it has been uh, such a blessing to me to be able to walk with you all through Mark and these... These final two messages are, man, including last week, really what, what, what we've got as far as Christians. We've got a Savior who has died, and we've got a Savior who rose. So it's just critical. These are, this is the foundation of what we believe. This is what life is all about. This is, this is the hope that we have in a season. Honestly, I think if, if we're honest, this season is tough. But my, my wife sent me a, a tweet this morning, actually, that was talking about one pastor was praying that this would be a season of miraculous, otherworldly peace and joy. Just, man, I want to make that my prayer too. That Advent, in a very counterintuitive way, that this Advent might be, even by the Spirit of God, the most joy-filled of all. True, deeply joy-filled. And, and the basis for our joy and the basis for our hope is found right in these final two messages. So let's, let's dive in. We're in Mark 15. Mark 15, verses 40 through 47. If you have a Bible you want to track with me, you can look at it. I want to start off by telling you a story about, I heard a while back about a guy. He was a, he was a world-renowned Greek scholar. He worked in the Greek classics. His name was Dr. E.V. Ryu. At 60 years old, he had completed a translation of Homer to English for the Penguin Classics series. And up to that time... Dr. Ryu was a lifelong agnostic. 
Penguin loved the translation and came back to him and asked him to translate the Gospels to English. When Ryu's son heard that his father was going to do this, he said, he said this. He said, it'll be interesting to see what father will make of the four Gospels. It will be even more interesting to see what the four Gospels make of father. And it didn't take long to find out. Within a year of beginning that translation work, Dr. Ryu, again, all of his life, an agnostic, responded to the Gospels he was translating and trusted in Christ. So I want to ask you the same question. What is the Gospel, what is the gospel going to make of you? What is the Gospel of Mark going to make of you? The intent, and we've talked about this, but the intent of this gospel is to make disciples of Jesus. And what do I mean by that? Disciples are people who grow to be like their master. People, in this case, who are becoming more and more like Jesus, becoming more and more Christ-like. That's what Christian discipleship is, becoming more and more like Jesus. How does that happen? Well, there, there are various avenues of God's grace that come to us, but one primary means that God uses is his word. What's happening between, between us and the Holy Spirit right now? You're listening to me preach God's word to you. And God is using his word to form you, to shape you, to be more like Jesus. You have to be an active listener. You can't be a passive listener. I'm not, I'm not here for entertainment purposes. We're here because we want to be more like Jesus. That's what we're doing. So what is the gospel going to make of you? What's the gospel of Mark going to make of you? What is God teaching you? How are you, being really precise about it, how are you becoming more and more like Jesus? Someone once said, and you've probably, you may have heard this before. Someone once said, you become what you behold. What you listen to, what you watch, what you meditate on, what you think about, what you consider. That shapes you, that forms you as a, as a human being. When we come to God's word every Sunday, we come to behold Jesus. And in a particular way, we come to the gospel of Mark, right? To behold Jesus. So my prayer has been that you become more and more like him. That's what it has been throughout the gospel of Mark. But I think even as, as I've walked personally through the gospel of Mark, that's become even more and more clear to me. I want to be more like him. I want you to become more like him. Two more weeks in the gospel of Mark, right? And the narrative now is at its bleakest and darkest moment, the lowest moment. Jesus, the son of God and the son of man, hangs bloody and bruised, mocked and scorned, dead on a crude, crude Roman cross. Just like one of those other criminals that were hanging there too. That's where it's at. On Good Friday, every year, it's a day that the church marks Jesus' death. Some churches have a practice where they'll, during the, at the end of the service, they'll be holding a candle and they'll sing a song or they'll recite a passage of scripture. And then when they're finished reading, singing, reciting, they'll blow that candle out. And everyone in the church will silently file out of the church without saying a word. Why? Why do they do that? Well, it's Good Friday. Jesus is dead. The light of the world has been snuffed out. 
And when the Son of God dies, we are left in darkness, despair, desolation. Today, throughout the course of this this sermon, I'm going to talk about days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And and I'm talking about the chronology of Jesus' death. Crucified on Friday, silence on Saturday, and resurrection on Sunday, which we're going to get to, but not yet. This is a distinctly Friday and Saturday sermon. In order to feel the wonder and the glory of Sunday, which we're going to get to, Lord willing, we're going to get there. In order to feel that wonder and glory, we need to stay a while on Friday and Saturday. We need to to spend some time on Friday and Saturday because we need to feel the sting of death. There's a pastor in Nashville. His name's Matt McCauley. He wrote a book called Remembering Death or Remember Death. And he said this. The more deeply we feel death's sting, the more consciously we will feel the gospel's healing power. The more we feel death's sting, the more consciously we will feel the gospel's healing power. So today, I want us to remember the death of Jesus to feel the painful, though necessary, sting of death. And to contemplate together what our response to the death of Jesus ought to be. So let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help to that end. Pray with me. Oh, Father, humble us. Humble us in these moments. We ask that your spirit would come upon this place and work, that you work through your word. Thank you. That you have given it to us. Lord remind us. Show us. Give us eyes to see. Your great sacrifice Lord Jesus. Convict us of sin. Cut to our hearts. Do good heart surgery today. Lord. Sober us with what you've done for us. Strengthen us by your word now. Feed us from your word to do your will. And Lord renew our longing to be with you. Where death will be no more. In Jesus name. Okay, here's where we're going to start. The reality of Jesus' death. At the time that Mark was written, hundreds of witnesses attested to the reality that Jesus had died and rose from the dead. Now, the people that were around Jesus at the time didn't like that. The disciples liked it, of course, that their Savior had risen, but a lot of the Jewish leaders didn't like it. To undermine that claim, the Jewish religious leaders started to circulate a theory. It was a rumor It was a lie. The theory that Jesus had never actually died. This is commonly referred to as the swoon theory. That somehow Jesus wasn't injured all that badly and he faked his death so that he could be taken down from the cross and eventually rescued by his disciples. That was a rumor they had started. Part of what Mark is doing here in our passage today, and shout out to Ellie Lumbricks for her help with this. She talked to me about this this week, is that... Mark is giving, essentially giving out the phone numbers of the people who witnessed Jesus' death. Do you see all the names? If you just look at this passage, you'll see it's riddled with names of people, with a lot of people. It's like publicly posting the Facebook profiles of these different people, various early church men and women, so that you can verify, yeah, Jesus was, in fact, dead. He didn't swoon. He didn't fake it. He was gone. Who are we talking about here? Whose phone numbers do we have? 
you want to go with that line of, line of thinking. Verse 40, look at verse 40. And there were also women looking on from a distance, among whom, so there's a big group of them, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Solomon. It's like Mark is saying here to us, big group of women saw him die. And if you want some names, here you go. Here are the names. And then we have Joseph of Arimathea. We're going to come back to him. And then Pilate confirms, confirms that Jesus is dead through the centurion. And then Joseph, undoubtedly, as he takes Jesus down off the cross and binds him and puts him in the tomb, that he had help with from servants and other people. Lots, here's the point, lots of people saw him dead. Let's just go back to the centurion for a minute. I mentioned that the centurion confirmed to Pilate that Jesus was dead. Remember, the centurion, the man who was standing there at the cross as Jesus had died, he's an expert in death. That's what he does. He puts people to death. He knows when someone is dead. It's gruesome, but he's well acquainted with death. He has to be. If the centurion said that somebody was dead and they weren't, then he would die. He was executed. This centurion knew that Jesus was dead. According to other gospel accounts, the Roman soldiers, not only the centurion, but the other soldiers around him, did not even bother to break Jesus' legs. Why would that be important? Because that was the way they made a quick end of the people who were on the cross. Remember, Pat has talked about this. You actually choke yourself to death when you're hanging on the cross. And the way that they can ensure that, that choking happens quickly is by breaking your legs. You can't push yourself up to get a breath anymore. But they didn't even bother to break Jesus' legs. Why? They knew he was dead. Because when they thrust the spear into his side, water and blood poured out. And they knew, because they'd seen it a thousand times, that was a sign that the heart had stopped beating. And Jesus was dead. He was dead. Now, let's think about this swoon theory from another angle, okay? For this theory to be correct, Jesus would have had to survive massive blood loss. Blood loss from the scourging, remember the whipping, over and over and over again, tearing apart his back. He would have had to survive blood loss from the wounds in his wrists, in his feet, the nail scars, and that final spear thrust. Additionally, in that impossibly weakened condition, he would have had to endure a couple days without food and drink. He would have to manage to unwrap himself from the grave clothes, roll away the massive stone holding, closing that tomb, find his followers, and convince them with what kind of mental and physical strength I don't know, but he'd have to have the, the mental and physical wherewithal to convince his followers that he actually had risen from the dead. And then he'd have to travel long distances over the next 40 days making appearances to various disciples and convincing them along the way, by the way, that he can somehow appear in rooms. This theory is absurd that Jesus would have swooned or faked his death. He was dead, but a good number of people then and a good number of people now have bought that lie. Mark wants us to be clear here. That's why he gives us the names, the phone numbers, the Facebook profiles, so to speak. He wants us to be clear that Jesus truly died. The witnesses of his death in verse 40 also saw him placed in the tomb in verse 47. And as we're going to see next week, they witnessed something truly spectacular on Sunday. The heart of this section before us this morning is, is about a response, though, to Jesus' death. I think it's important for us to lay that groundwork that Jesus actually died as a true 
factual event. And it has incredible implications. Then and now. The heart, though, is the response of this passage is the response to Jesus's death. We're going to see it in this man, Joseph of Arimathea. We're also going to consider the response of the other disciples. But God's word poses this question to us this morning. And I really want you to listen. I really want you to get this. I want you to pause where you are. I want you to hear me say this. Jesus really died. That's what we just established. Jesus really died. So how will you respond? Jesus really died. So how will you respond? Let's consider three responses together right now. Here's the first one. The first response to Jesus' death. First, the, the death of Jesus causes despair. The death of Jesus causes despair. The women standing far back, they witness the death of Jesus. But what they and the other disciples experience is the death of hope. The shattering of dreams. The desolation of their people. The barren darkness of despair. Jesus came proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Really? No. The king is dead. Despair and depression and desolation. And not only that for the disciples, fear. Overwhelming fear. In the Gospel of John, we can read about how the disciples had gathered together, hidden in a room with the doors locked, out of fear. What they thought he was, he clearly wasn't. Whatever they thought, whatever they thought was going to happen, well, now it's dead in a tomb. The king was dead, and they are defenseless. Life seemed hopeless and meaningless. For the disciples, every act on Friday. And Saturday would have been torturous. Every thought, care, or deed would be met with, what's the use? Who cares? This is the reality of Saturday. Where Jesus is dead. Where death wins. The disciples know that there is no hope if Jesus isn't king. And that... This is the definition of despair. No more hope. There is no good out there for me anymore. For so many, this is life. Life lived on Saturday. A life of no real hope. A life where death ultimately swallows up everything. Most people that you encounter live life here. Either understandably depressed because death will inevitably win or numbing themselves to the reality of death through pleasures and people and stuff and on and on and on. Listen to what this one pastor says, Pastor Ray Stedman. He said, someone has called our present generation Saturday's children and it, is, and it is an appropriate term. Our great American cities are, for the most part, teeming with pools of human misery where people live out their days in a kind of ritual dance toward death without hope. In the midst of an increasingly godless world, despair grips people's hearts everywhere. Hopelessness and meaninglessness 
come crushing in on us from every side. If this life is all that we've got, if Jesus is forever dead, we are all Saturday's children. We must feel the hopelessness and the meaninglessness and the deadness, the despair of a life lived apart from Christ. So what if this is you? What do you do? What if your life is lived there apart from Christ? What are you to do? What are you, what are, what are you options? What are your options? If you live life apart from following Jesus, I pray, I have been praying, I'm praying right now. You would break out of the mind-numbing, heart-numbing, hopeless rat race that is headed towards death by trusting in the one who defeated death. Trust in Jesus. If that is you, if you have not trusted in Jesus, your life is founded, based on, built on, a foundation that is no foundation. There is no hope. But there is a hope in Jesus. Trust in him today. Sunday is coming. Resurrection is coming. He defeated death for you. And though his, and though, and through that death, through his death for you, he gives you life. True life. A life of eternal meaning. Of great and everlasting hope. That will never disappoint and what if you follow Christ, but day after day, the world still feels so dark, so dark. First of all, I just want to say to you how sorry I am. I have been there too. And let me gently remind you today of what is true. Jesus is a savior who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He knows what you feel. And what's more, he has secured for you a hope that will never fail. Never fail. You can take heart again today, even today, even in this moment, you can take heart that he died for you because he loves you. He hung on the cross for you because of his love for you. And that has secured for you the hope that will never fail. That's what his death has done for you. Get your eyes up off of yourself. Get it up onto the cross. Get your eyes outside. Get your mind and your thinking outside of yourself. And go to him who died for you. Live your life for him. Live your brief life for his glory. For his purposes. For his despair shattering glory. And think about this Christ community. All of us. All of you. Think about this. Listen, you live in a world right now that is teetering on the edge of depression and despair at all times. I don't even need to quote to you the stats. I don't even need to tell you about the science, about all the things that are happening in this world. You already know that. Death feels like it's lurking behind everything right now. It is touching all of us in a way that maybe it hasn't in the past. This is a wake-up call. It's become real to us. Death has become real to us who love to hide the reality of death. It's become more real to us than maybe it ever has before for some of us. Seize these moments. Christ community, seize the moments 
to present Christ as the one and only solution to despair, to hopelessness, to meaninglessness. If you're a Christian, listen, if you're a Christian, you have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's true of you right now. You have a living hope that overcomes death. So tell people about it. Give them the reason for the hope that you have. That's what Christ has done for you. Why am I driving down the road of death today? Why am I hitting that again and again? Because as one pastor said, he said this, if death is not a problem, Jesus won't be much of a solution. If you don't hate death, you won't love Jesus. We've got to feel the despair that death brings, that loss of hope, that loss of meaning. Jesus came to destroy that, and he did. Death, though, brings us to despair. I don't want to leave that point too quickly. But consider this. Why is this day, in the narrative of Jesus' life, why is this day, Saturday, just brushed over in the gospel account? Mark just calls it after the Sabbath. That's what he says in chapter 16, verse 1. Why is it just passed over? This would be the darkest day of the disciples' lives. Yet when they sat down to write down Jesus' life, when they talked about their experiences with him, they just fly by Friday, they just fly by Saturday. Why do you think that is? It's because hope far greater had swallowed up their darkest despair. More on that next week. So that's the first one. The death of Jesus causes despair. That's a response that we would have to. Here's the second thing. The death of Jesus inspires. Look at verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph, who was a leader in Jerusalem, who longed for the kingdom of God to come, had just failed Luke tells us he was a good and righteous man in the Gospel of Luke. The Apostle John tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but he had kept his allegiance to Jesus secret because he had feared the religious leaders among whom he served. And when Jesus was brought before that religious council on, on, on that fateful Thursday night, Friday morning, the religious council was the Sanhedrin, if you remember that. That's what Joseph served on. They were condemning him to death. And what did Joseph do? But we don't have any recorded reaction. He was silent. But after Jesus died, something changed for Joseph. We don't know his heart, but his actions do show us something. He took a big step of faith, a big risk. He asked for Jesus' body. Now, it was risky for two reasons. Here's the first reason. Joseph risked getting in trouble with Pilate. Pilate had just got played by the Sanhedrin, remember? That's what, was, that's what happened. Um, he didn't want to kill Jesus. He thought he had a workaround where he was going to put Jesus before the crowd, and the crowd was going to call for Jesus to be, to be set free, and then he would, could wash his hands of the whole thing, and Jesus would go. But that's not what happened. The religious leaders actually pulled a fast one on him, and got the crowd riled up to call not for Jesus, but for a murder. The murder was set free. Jesus was killed. 
So Pilate's embarrassed. He's likely lost face. And now this guy who's part of that ruling council is coming to him to ask for Jesus' body? That was risky, what Joseph was doing. It's also risky because Joseph risked getting in trouble with that religious council that he served on, the Sanhedrin. Why would he, the council might be asking themselves, why would he ask for Jesus' body? Jesus, the blasphemer? Why would he not want to show him the greatest dishonor? Joseph was clearly walking into the light and associating himself with Jesus. But why even bother asking? Why even bother going for Jesus' body in the first place? Joseph couldn't bear to have Jesus' body thrown in a mass grave with other criminals. That's where his body was headed. Beheaded. That's what they did with criminals, especially those accused of treason, like Jesus was. That, to be buried in a mass grave, was to the Jewish mind a the, the greatest of insults. Something about Jesus' life had drawn Joseph toward him, so much so that he was secretly following Jesus. But it was Jesus' death that compelled him to step forward in a new way. Even though the dreams of the kingdom of God come, were dead. This, by Joseph of Arimathea, was a courageous act. At the beginning, I asked a question to all of you. I asked, what will the gospel of Mark make of you? And I talked about how what it makes of you is tied to beholding, to seeing Jesus. You become like that which you behold. When Joseph beheld his Lord dead on a cross, he saw his courage to face death, his dedication to God, his selfless sacrifice, it elevated Joseph. It inspired him. It inspired a courageous, dedicated, selfless response from Joseph. So, what about you? What about you? Look to the cross. That's where it starts. We must, you must, I must, look and see him who died for you there. What happens when you see him there? His courage inspires our courage. His dedication inspires our dedication. His sacrifice inspires our sacrifice. Hudson Taylor, missionary to China, periodically came back from his missions work overseas to challenge people to give their lives for the sake of the gospel among people and in places where Christ was not known. But do you know how he inspired such sacrificial action? How did he do that? By preaching Christ crucified. By proclaiming the death of the Lord of all who gave his life as a ransom for many. That's how he inspired people to give their lives for him. By proclaiming the Lord that gave his life for you, for me. Last Thursday, I gave a seminar on race and justice. And one thing that I hammered that night, and I'm going to continue to hammer 
is that if you want to seek to bring about kingdom change in this world, it will cost you your life. But how will we find the fuel for sacrificial service for others? Where does the fuel to lay down your life for others come from? If you follow Jesus, it's going to cost you your life. If you want to affect kingdom change in a plethora of ways, in many different ways, it's going to cost you your life. But what fuels that? I'll tell you what won't fuel that. It's not the people that you go to serve. The people that you go to serve are going to disappoint you. They're not going to satisfy you. They're going to let you down. The fuel and drive, the courage and dedication to serve others, to bring about kingdom change in this world, comes fundamentally by looking to a Savior who led the way by giving his life for others. You've got to look to him. So what is your response? I'm asking you right now, the Spirit of God through his word, is asking you right now, what is your response to the death of Jesus? The death of Jesus brings despair and plays us low. But it also inspires. It elevates. That's what it did for Joseph. It called him to a higher level of faith in God and commitment to Christ. What he saw there, he became more like, right? In, in your mind, in your heart, I'm urging you, even in these moments, to draw near to the cross of Christ. How will you respond to the death of Jesus for you? Will you look on him dead and then go about life as usual? No, do not. Do not go about life as usual. Consider what he gave for you. Consider the life he laid down for you. And then ask yourself, ask him. Ask him, what would you have me do? Where would you have me go? Who would you have me serve? How can I lay down my life for you like you laid down your life for me? The death of Jesus brings despair. The death of Jesus inspires. And here's the last one. The death of Jesus sets you free. Jesus really died. We established that. He bore our sins on the cross and he died in your place. His lifeless body was taken down from the cross. He was wrapped up in burial clothes. He was placed in a tomb. And the tomb was rolled shut. He was dead in the tomb. Jesus really died. Because Jesus really died, he really carried your sins with him into the grave. Because Jesus really died, he really left them there when he came out. And because your sins are there in the grave and he is alive, you no longer carry the weight of sins. You no longer face judgment for sin. You are truly free. You got to believe that. That's a good moment where you can go, amen. You are truly free because those sins were left in the grave. John Bunyan always has the best way of illustrating such beautiful truths. John Bunyan was an old Puritan from several hundred years ago. And his famous allegory, um, Pilgrim's Progress, he, he describes this happening to the main character, whose name is Christian, as he's making his way to the celestial city, which is heaven. This is what he says about Christian. 
Christian ran until he came to a little hill. And upon that place stood a cross. And a little below, in the bottom, a tomb. So I saw in my dream, and just as Christian walked up to the cross, his heavy burden, his sins that had been weighing him down, was loosed from off his shoulders. And it fell off of his back and began to tumble and continued to do so until it came to the mouth of the tomb where it fell in and I saw it no more. There is, in looking to the cross of Christ, in trusting his death for you, freedom from sin. Whatever you have done, whatever you are doing now, those sins are loosed at the foot of the cross and they tumble into the tomb to be seen no more. That, that brings so much joy to me. I am so thankful for that. The lightness to my feet, the lightness to my shoulders, to my soul, the pure exhilaration of knowing that we are forgiven and set free. The weight of sin is gone, truly gone at the foot of the cross. Here again from Bunyan, this is what he said. Then was Christian glad and lightsome. And he said with a joyful heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and life by his death. Then Christian stood a while to look and wonder, for it, had, for it was very surprising to him that the sight of the cross would thus ease him of his burden. He looked long and looked again until the tears came pouring down his cheeks. Jesus' death was real. And it, his death, was for you. The death of Jesus brings despair. So remember the barrenness of death, of life without hope. Remember that? The death of Jesus inspires. Remember his sacrifice and be emboldened to follow in his ways. And the death of Jesus sets you free. Free to follow your Lord. Free. Free from sin. Remember that if you trust in him, your sins were left in that grave. Let's pray. Oh God, help us to look long and look again at the cross until tears come pouring out. You did it, Jesus. You did die for me. Cause us, your people, to go into this hopeless world, to be emboldened, to follow in your ways, to go in the freedom that you have purchased for us and to tell the world of our Savior, who gave his life for me. We have truly a living hope. Help us to not forget that today and help us to rejoice in it next Sunday. You are, you are Lord Jesus, a powerful and precious Savior. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.